Our text for this morning's sermon is in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verses 1 and reading through verse 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, so among yourselves. From the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth, as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The question that we are asking in the month of July is, what is the fruit of hope? We answered last Sunday, the fruit of hope is joy, because it says in Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. In other words, God never commands Christians to be happy if there's nothing to look forward to. But the gospel is the truth that there is always something to look forward to in the Christian life. In fact, there is something so stunningly great to look forward to, laid up for us in heaven, that whatever suffering or affliction we may have to undergo on the way there, it is going to seem like a brief and light affliction, Paul says, in comparison to the glory that is going to be revealed to the children of God. And so since there's always a future and a hope and a glory held out to the children of God, the command stands. Rejoice always. And again I say, rejoice in hope. Now, someone may object and say, John, if you focus on that, you're going to produce a way of thinking that creates an escapist mentality. You're going to cause people to be so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. You're going to set people's minds so into the future that they're going to neglect and forget the pressing needs of the present. Now, we must ask, therefore, is that true? When Christians set their hearts earnestly and intensely on the hope of the glory of God, on the hope of seeing Jesus, on the hope of being free from sin, on the hope of no longer getting sick anymore, on the hope of having an eternity of happy tomorrows, when we have our hearts set on that hope in the future, does it create escapist mentality? Does it cause our 
minds to be so much in heaven that we neglect the pressing needs around us. Today's message is intended to to argue that the Bible portrays just the opposite. The Bible teaches and shows that a strong confidence in the promises of God and a passionate preference for the joys of heaven over the joys of the earth is precisely the power that breaks the bondage of worldly selfishness. That breaks the bondage of worldly self-centeredness and regret and self-pity and fear and greed and bitterness and despair and laziness and impatience and envy. And in the place of all these, hope produces the fruit of love. I don't believe that the problem with the church today is that too many people are passionately in love with the joy of heaven. Name three. The problem is not that professing Christians are retreating from the world in order to read the Bible half the day and sing worship songs the other half while the world goes to hell. That is not the problem. The problem with the church is that professing Christians are reading the Bible ten minutes a day, earning money half the day, and spending the rest of the time enjoying and fixing what they spent their money on. It is not heavenly mindedness that hinders love. It is worldly mindedness that hinders love. Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the joys of heaven that they feel like exiles and aliens on this earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that the diamonds of this world look like baubles, that the entertainment of this world is empty, and that the moral causes of this world are too small because they don't have eternity in them. Where are those people? Well, I know where they're not. They're not enslaved to the television. They're not enslaved to eating or drinking or partying or putzing around. They are free men. Aliens and exiles and sojourners in the world, they have one question. And they ask it every day. How can I maximize my glory for all eternity in God? And they give one answer every day. The deeds of love. One thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven. One thing satisfies the heart whose treasure is in heaven. The deeds of heaven. And heaven is a world of love.
It is not the cords of heaven that bind the hands of love. It is the love of money, the love of leisure, the love of possessions, the love of fame, the love of power, the love of family, the love of vacations, the love of advancement. These are the things that bind the hands of love so that they can't get free to suffer for the sake of anybody's good. So I say it again with all the conviction that lies within me. Heavenly mindedness does not hinder love. Worldly mindedness hinders Love. If there are professing Christians who do not love, it is not because they love heaven, it is because they still love the world. It doesn't matter whether it is disguised with a weekend religious show. Well, let us go to the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Don't take my word for it. Let us see if these things are in the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 will be our main focus, and I would like to do three things with you. First, I would like to go through this text and point out four observations about love. Secondly, after we've seen these four observations, I would like to try to tie them together into three or four practical guidelines for what you can do in response to this that you might perchance become that kind of person. And then finally, I want to close with two illustrations of people in the scriptures who were driven to love by hope. Okay? Step number one then, four observations about love. Number one, from verse four, Love is a public fruit. Verse 4, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints. Paul was writing probably from Rome. These people are way over in Asia Minor, and he has heard of their love. How come? Because it's public. It's a reputation they've got. You can't keep your love a secret. Even though Jesus said... If you give alms, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Keep a secret. Nevertheless, if you stop to help somebody change a tire when it's minus 42 degrees, the word will get out. If you are habitually loving, it has to do with other people. They're going to tell on you. Love is a reputation. It is a public fruit. No matter how humbly you may try to conceal it. Second observation from this text is that love is a fruit of hope. Look at the connection between verses 4 and 5. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints because... Underline that. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
So the connection between love in verse 4 and hope in verse 5 is causal. So it's no longer my word, it is God's word that hope produces or causes love. Therefore, if you lack love, it is not because you have too much hope that is laid up for you in heaven. It's because you don't have enough. Now notice that the word hope in verse 5 is not subjective experience of hoping. It's an objective reality laid up for us in heaven out there. It's the glory of God. It's the joy of eternity. It's seeing Jesus. It's freedom from sin and sickness. It's all laid up for us, kept for us in heaven. And so someone may ask, well, how can a distant objective reality that we don't yet experience produce the active labors of love? And the answer is surely that when you set your heart on that, it kindles subjective hope within That's the link up. So the connection between the three is this. There is the objective hope laid up for us in heaven, which kindles within us a mighty hope and a freedom and a joy and a power that then overflows in acts of love towards other people. So that's the second observation. Love is a fruit of hope. Note the connection between verses 4 and 5. Third, Love is a fruit of the gospel. Starting again in the middle of verse 5, it says, Of this, that is, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth the gospel. So they learned all about their hope, which is producing so much in the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing so among yourselves from the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. So, It isn't just hope that has borne the fruit of love. It's the gospel, which is the message of hope, which is bearing fruit wherever it's preached, both in Colossae and in Rome and in Minneapolis and in Liberia and Mexico City. Wherever the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, it bears fruit in hope, which produces love. We ought to keep that in mind because every one of us has the duty to share the gospel. And now we see what the gospel is. At root, it's a promise. The gospel is promises. Promises to people. Let me give you some new vocabulary. If you want to be saved, you must repent and believe. That's old vocabulary. I'll never give it up. It's precious. It's biblical. Here's a new vocabulary. If you want to inherit the hope that is laid up for you in heaven, you must... Now, this is a definition of repentance. Stop putting your hope in the promises of the world. And start... This is a definition of faith. Putting your hope in the promises of God. When I say promises of the world, I mean the promises that money makes, promises that drink makes, promises that advancement makes, promises that fame makes, promises that beauty makes, promises that a spouse makes, promises that anything in this world that is not God makes, that must be abandoned. He who would come after me must forsake all that he has. 
And when you stop hoping in the promises that the world makes and start hoping in the promises that God makes, you have been converted, born again, saved. And you will inherit the promise that is laid up for you in heaven. So the third observation is that the life of love is a fruit of the gospel, which is full of promises, which begets hope, which produces love. Finally, in this series of four observations, love is a fruit of the Spirit. Verse 7 continues on by saying that the Colossians had heard the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Last week we said that spiritual joy is not native to a fallen sinner. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. I don't have joy in God by nature. I have joy in money by nature. I don't love people by nature either. I might manipulate them and even treat them kindly in order to advance my purposes. But it's not love that is God's love. In order to love somebody with the love of Christ, you've got to be in the Spirit. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we love. It's a a work of God. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Here we are, back to back. The two sermons and the two fruits. I didn't overlook verse 3. I want to pick it up right here. Because verse 3 is a confirmation of this truth that love is a work or gift or fruit of God, the Holy Spirit. Because verse 3 says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith and love. Well, why do you thank God because you have heard of their love? Because he made it. It's his work. If they had produced it of themselves, he'd thank the Colossians. He wouldn't thank God. In fact, let me throw this out for your investigation. To my knowledge, in all of Paul's 13 letters, he never thanks any human for anything. He always thanks God for everything they do. And I have often thought, what if that happened in a church? What if a church put in the place of all thanks to persons, thanks to God? What would it do? Suppose you wanted to thank me for visiting in the hospital or for the sermon or something. And you came up to me and instead of saying, thank you, pastor, for coming or thank you, pastor, for the sermon, instead you said, I thank God for that sermon, or I thank God for your visit. What would that do to me? It would do two things. It would humble me, and it would direct my attention to God. I don't think we'd lose anything. Now, woe to us if we cease to be a thankful people. Woe to us if we don't tell one another our feelings of gratitude. But you might try it. You might try it. It may not be an accident that you never read 
in any of Paul's letters expressions of thanks to people, but only to God for people and his work in people. So that's the fourth observation. He thanks God because love is a fruit of the work of God. So there are four observations. Love is a public fruit. Love is a fruit of hope. Love is a fruit of the gospel. And love is a fruit of the spirit. Now, the second step in our message is to take these things and try to put them together in a way that yields some practical directives for our lives. Let's start by saying our goal is to love like this. May I assume that you want that? You've tasted enough of it that you want to be a lover of men. You want to deny yourself and come to the end of your day with a clean conscience that you haven't just lived for yourself, but you've spent yourself for others. I believe everybody in here has tasted the desire for that. All right, if that's our goal, what does this text tell us we might do to move to that goal? Number one, it directs us to give heed to the gospel. Practically, that simply means listen to the Word of God. Be like Mary. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen it. There she sits in front of Jesus Christ listening. Or be like Peter, James, and John, who were slow to learn this, but they went on to their faces and got it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus shone like the sun and the exceeding glory came over them in a cloud and a voice came from God Almighty and said, This is my beloved Son. What? Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Be quiet. Turn off the radio. Listen to Him. Because the world is screaming. The world is screaming in magazines and newspapers and radio and television and billboards and our own hearts. The world screams at you all day long. If you don't work to listen to Jesus, it just fades into the distance. You come on Sunday morning and it sounds like a, a language from a foreign country. We've got to listen, give heed to the gospel truths, to the promises of the Word of God. The second directive this text gives is to be in the Holy Spirit. Verse 8 says that their love was in the Spirit. It's in the power of the Spirit. Now what does that, what do we do practically with this? Here's what I think we should do. As you come to the gospel, whether it's Swindoll on the radio or a tract or a book by J.I. Packer or a sermon or a Sunday school class, or you're just sitting reading the Bible, wherever you are exposing yourself to the gospel, don't come to that moment relying upon yourself saying, I will now become a hopeful person by exposing myself to biblical truth, period. Because the kindling won't ignite without the tongues of fire from on high. You must come in the Spirit. You must come in prayer. When you open the Bible, you must say with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous truths. Because if you don't pray that, you won't behold wondrous truths. You'll behold dull old hat, run-of-the-mill, same old stuff truth, and it won't move you at all. We are so utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to be kindled. Sure, I can throw wood on the fire, 
But if the wind of the Spirit doesn't make that spark flame, I'm a dead man. It's happened to all of us. Or pray like Paul in Ephesians 1, where he prays for the whole church, grant them to have a spirit of wisdom and knowledge and enlighten the eyes of their hearts that they might know the hope to which they've been called and the greatness of the inheritance in the saints. What is he praying? He's not just praying for head knowledge. They've already got it. He's praying for power. We need it so bad. So that's directive number two. When you go to the gospel, don't go in the power of yourself. Go in the power of the Spirit. Plead with God to ignite your heart when you hear the Word of God. You might ask Him right now. Third, the text directs us to do one more thing, namely, direct our hearts to the hope laid up for us in heaven. Colossians 3, you might look at these two verses Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2 say the same thing in different words, I think. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, like the hope laid up for you in heaven, not on things that are on the earth. Now, don't let that go in one ear and out the other right now. Let's take that little phrase. Set your minds. What does that mean? How do you do that? Right now as I'm preaching, how do you do that? Or this afternoon as you lay the Bible open in, a, in an easy chair and try to sanctify the Lord's day and make it holy by meditating upon the Word. How do you do this? It seems to me that it means something like this. When you come before the gospel truth of Scripture, whether sitting and listening or whether reading, and when you pray to God the Holy Spirit, come, O Holy Spirit, ignite my heart, open my eyes to see wondrous things now, fill me with hope, there is one more thing you should do. Consciously perform an act of taking your mind or your affections or your heart and taking them off the hopes of the world and putting them on heaven. Heavenly hopes. Christ, the hope laid up for in heaven. A conscious act of saying, I now, by virtue of the will that I have, take my hopes away from my hope in money, away from my hope in pleasure, away from my hope in sex, away from my hope in power, away from my hope in prestige, or whatever you're hoping in, and I put it in heaven. A conscious act. And God may, according to His great and sovereign grace, make you a loving person. And if he does, this is what will happen. We will be more patient and kind. We will be less arrogant and boastful and rude. We will not be so irritable. We won't be so prone to keep an account of wrongs or return evil for evil. 
we will be inclined to bear all things and endure all things for the sake of a needy friend or needy enemy. We will not speak about our neighbor's faults without going to talk to our neighbor. I haven't done that perfectly, and I admit it, but oh, I want to be that way. It would revolutionize this and every other church if that were true of the people in it. I will not speak evil of anyone until I have gone to that person and made every effort to exhort them or understand them. We will not return good for evil. We will use our discretionary time not to maximize the fleeting comforts of our body, but to dream dreams and strategize how we might become blessings for other people. We will be more and more overflowing and other-directed in our lifestyle. And that will cause us to be so different, so new. It'll change you, it'll change your family, it'll change this church. And Jesus said the world will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And David said they will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So in summary then, before we close with two illustrations... There are four observations about love. Love is a public fruit. Love is the fruit of hope. Love is the fruit of the gospel. And love is the fruit of the Spirit. And when you put all those together and ask, what shall I do? The answer comes back, make love your aim. And as a means to that aim, direct the attention of your mind to gospel truths and promises. And as you direct your mind to gospel truths and promises morning, noon, and night, Plead with God the Holy Spirit to ignite you and to show you wondrous things and to fill you with hope. And as you both read and pray, perform as much as it lies within you an active transferring of your affections off of the world onto the hope laid up for you in heaven. Two illustrations from the book of Hebrews, and I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10, if I could preach for another 20 minutes, I'd give you six illustrations, because there are six that I found and would love to talk about, but I'll put them in the manuscript, and that'll be on file in the office, and if you want to see what the other four are, you can get it next week. Illustration number one comes from Hebrews 10. Barnabas walks into the bathroom about 6.15 this morning, as he always does when I'm taking a shower, and he says, Daddy, can you tell me a story? Which I always do from the sermon, so that if he's here, he'll recognize something. And this morning, the story went something like this. Once upon a time, there was a group of Christians and they loved God and Jesus so much that they just preached and they taught and they talked about him all the time. And there were some mean guys. And those mean guys said, you stop talking about Jesus or we're going to throw you in jail. We'll get soldiers and throw you in jail. And did they stop talking? No. Barnabas says, no. 
What happened? They threw them in jail. And you know what happened? What? The other Christians had to decide, are they going to go visit those Christians in jail and risk their lives? They might get hurt. Or are they going to go to the basement and hide? Verse 34. This is what they did and why. For you had compassion on the prisoners. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What was the power that drove these Christians in love to the door of the prison? It was hope. It says so. They did it because they knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one. They were willing to suffer and risk the plundering of their houses when the rocks started coming through the windows and being pelted along the way and having all their furniture broken up and burned in the streets, perhaps. They were willing to do that joyfully because they were heavenly-minded. And therefore, I say it again with all the authority of the Word of God. Heavenly-mindedness does not Hinder love. Worldliness hinders love. Illustration number two. It's in Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. Here's the situation. Moses, we all know the story, don't we? He was found in the bulrushes, taken into Pharaoh's house by his daughter, and brought up there. The daughter of the king and her chosen child had all the honor, all the money, all the fame, all the wisdom he wanted. This was it. You couldn't get any higher having been born a Jew. And what did he do? He spit on it. And he took the leadership of a no-good, run-of-the-mill, stiff-necked, rebellious, grumbling people who gave him grief for 40 years and he never forsook them, but he was willing to die for them. Why? Let's read it. Verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to share ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered abuse suffered for the Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. What was the power that gave him the freedom to forsake the palace and head for the promised land through the misery of the wilderness for the sake of this people? It was hope. This is an illustration of how setting your heart firmly and confidently on a great reward in heaven utterly revolutionizes your values on the earth. He's crazy. I mean, anybody that says wealth, I'll tell you what wealth is. Wealth is suffering. 
Wealth is getting criticized and made fun of. Wealth is getting kicked out of Egypt and having to fight. That's wealth. He's crazy by worldly standards. He's a fool for Christ, for the cause of the Messiah. Suffering becomes wealth. Now, what is it that turns a person upside down like that? Who says to suffer to get a person saved, to be willing to risk a little tittering and a little laughter in the office. That's glory. That's joy. That's wealth. What do you have to be? What has to happen in your life? You have to become heavenly minded. You have to love heaven more than you love the approval of men. If a professing believer doesn't love, it isn't because he has fallen in love with heaven. It's because he's still in love with the world, with the approval of men. It's because he still fears what men fear, the suffering of Egypt, and still loves what men love, the pleasures of Egypt. No. Heavenly mindedness does not bind the hands of love. Worldliness binds the hands of love. The love of money, the love of pleasure, the love of leisure, the love of prestige, the love of all manner of worldly possibilities. Bind your hands so that you stay at home. So that when you think of how to use leisure time, how often does it come to your mind? How can I devise a blessing for the lost? Because we're worldly, not because we're heavenly minded. Let nobody tell you that having your heart in heaven like Moses and in heaven like those Hebrew Christians makes you unloving. It's the love of your pleasure on this earth that makes you unloving. And oh, that God might come down today in the power of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of His Son, and fill us all in this room with the hope of glory and break the bonds of worldliness that bind the hands of love. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, do it, we pray. Work it in my life. I want so much to be a more loving pastor. The first verse of that choral anthem just gripped me so deeply. It doesn't matter how loud and how forcefully you can preach if you don't love the people. So I want so much for this reality in my own life. And I know that my brothers and sisters here are yearning with me to become so heavenly minded, so full of a love to you, that they are freed from the worldliness that binds the hands of love. Perform it, I pray. And all the people said, Amen.